and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degeler. I am the head of media at TNW and host and producer of this podcast. Joining me today for a change is Boris Feldhausen von Zante, a co-founder, member of the board and former CEO of TNW. Hey, Boris, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. It's been it's been a while since I actually talked to you, so it's a, it's a great pleasure uh, having you in the room today. <laughs> so in today's episode, we are going to discuss the jobs created by Dutch startups, giant state funding for energy projects in the European Union, translations of the word computer, and a bunch of other things in between. You will also hear an interview with Cal Henderson, the co-founder and CTO at Slack, and an investor in First Minute's recently raised fund. But first, before we start, I really wanted to take time to uh, talk to you, Boris, about your take on things uh, happening in the European tech ecosystem, but also about yourself and uh, your own journey and uh, uh, what are you uh, up to these days. So for those who are recently joined the TNW family, started listening to this podcast or read the website, who are you? (laughs) Yeah, my name is uh, Boris or at Boris on Twitter or Instagram or or Threads. Um, And I founded the company together with Patrick uh, in 2006. And I've been the CEO for a long time and then at one point we sold part of the company to the financial times and then i think a year or maybe two later i uh, uh, asked mir to become the ceo who was uh, my coo up until mm-hmm. that point and before uh, tnw I, I started a few internet companies and sold a few as well and and then i started tnw yeah so if you had to try and come up with the most fundamental difference between the TNW that you started and the TNW that you sold uh, to the EFT, what would that be? So, of course, the company grew, right? So we started just Patrick and me, and and then very quickly we added one person and another one and another one. And so obviously there's that difference. But like if you ask me that question, I, uh, the first thing I think about is, is more like how the world has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, when uh, when we started TNW, uh, the internet or just everything digital was still so uh, exotic and new and, and uh, difficult to understand that if we told people uh, everything is turning digital, their minds would just be blown, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, how, what, like, what is it going to affect? And I think for the first maybe 10 years, that was really the driving force. It was almost like a wave that we were uh, surfing, right? It was a sort of following where the only thing we had to do was sort of spark that interest. And, and then people would just be all over us and just say, like, tell me more. <laughs> and that's why people read the next web. And I think then at one point there came a point where I started noticing if I would say everything is turning digital, the people would just go like, yeah. What else is Yeah, mean? I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing it, right? Everything is digital. And that was a, an interesting sort of turning point. And I realized like uh, we as human beings are, are capable of, of understanding linear growth, right? Mm-hmm. But then in practice, it's always different. It's, it's not linear. It's, it's more like a wave or it's an S-curve or sometimes it's sort of a stop and and, uh, and start thing, one step back, two steps forward. And I think that's like, uh, even though 
the internet has been around for a while. Like in in the history of the world, it's still a very new and and young uh, phenomenon. Yeah, right? phenomena, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, I think during my time at DNW, I started realizing this as everything is not just linear growth. It's just not. It's here and then it's becoming, uh, you know, a global phenomena and, and changing everybody's. It's more so, sort of a wavy stop and, and, and start thing. And uh, what I noticed at one point when everything was digital, and of course there's still more things, you know, becoming digital, but still there was a point where we we're sort of like, all right, everything is now digital. And then we started realizing, all right, and not everything that's digital is actually good, right? And, and there were... A few years where when we said everything is turning digital and people will go like, yeah, and that sucks, right? Everything <laughs> sucks about it. Yeah. And that was a difficult time for us because we were so optimistic and excited about technology. And then suddenly we had to admit because we were seeing it as well, like, right, not everything, you know, not everything shiny and bright is actually good for the world. Mm-hmm. And I think um, right now we're sort of, I feel uh, things changing again, where people get new excitement again, and we're like, all right, so it was a new thing. Everything became digital. Not everything was good or positive or uh, beneficial, Uh, but now we're sort of getting used to that, and now we're finding new stuff to be optimistic about. And so, so when I look at TNW now, it's not a it's not a linear growth thing. It's I, I realize we went through these phases dictated by how the rest of the world was changing. Um, and that was both interesting and sometimes terrifying, right? Because the uh, we were such a positive company, so much so very much built on uh, innovation is great, uh, digital is going to improve the world and revolutionize everything. And then for a few years, we we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I invited everybody to Facebook and maybe that wasn't the smartest play, right? So... But uh, is there any particular place, any particular segment of technology where you see more optimism? At this moment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like there's sort of optimism everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So AI, I, I think AI is one of those things um, where, so w- when we had the first conference, it was just everything was mm-hmm. going digital. But then I think the second one was everything is going to be dynamic, right? It was Web 2.0. Web 2.0 and, yeah. and, and then after that, we said like, all right, now everything is going to go mobile. And then at one point we said, well, and, and mobile actually is going to be the iPhone, right? And then it was the App Store. So, so we never had like an official theme for the conference, mm-hmm. but you would go to the conference and then sort of, uh, here certain sort of keywords pop up and you're like, oh, right, so this is going to be the next year, yeah, right? This course, is now yeah. the, the theme. And I think AI is one of those things where um, it's, it was so interesting where for years AI was just something like, well, yeah, AI, but really, right? It was just, <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. We all understand the theory, but like in practice, it's very limited. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then from one day to another, not linear at all. It was just boom, it was just here and everywhere and everybody's using it. And and that's one of those things that, that really reminded me of the excitement of, of those earlier movements, which were never that like black and white day and night difference, but 
but the iPhone was a very similar thing where just everybody was thinking this is going to change everything again, right? Like everything is now going to work on 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 this whole new um yeah, device but also like it changed everything, yeah, right? That yeah, was yeah. very clear. But now you I but you see the difference I think is that now with the experience that we have and knowing where the digitalization has brought the world and its different ports, we are not as optimistic we're not as trusting uh, yeah. to the technology as we used to be 10 15 years ago yeah but you could say so we're slightly more mature mm. and maybe slightly more responsible so instead of just all blindly jumping into the next thing we're like all right a new thing is interesting and any new tool tool can be used for positive stuff but if I give you a hammer, you can also crash my skull, right? So, so, so any tool, of course, is positive. But let's also keep an eye out for what's maybe not so positive. And I think that that has changed mm -hmm. somewhat. And and of course, also like one of my favorite speakers at many of our events was uh, Andrew Keen, mm -hmm. and they called him the Antichrist of San Francisco uh, of Silicon Valley. And he was also he was very critical sometimes even negative about technology. And he was great to have at our, at our events because everybody was just positive. And then at least we had one person saying like, you know, should we pay attention? What are the downsides? And some people didn't appreciate that at all. And I think and nowadays, if somebody says, all right, here's a new technology, shall we also spend some time looking at how to prevent abuse? Then everybody's just like, yes, let's, let's, <laughs> please, let's uh, focus on that as well. Instead of saying, oh, why are you being so negative? So I, I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. No, of course. So you yourself, you were an internet entrepreneur. That's how you described yourself uh, on a few occasions. And you were an internet entrepreneur at the time when the word internet was still capitalized. So that's like the late <laughs> yeah. 90s, early 2000s. Uh, so what was it like then, actually? Like, uh, I really I really have no idea what it, uh, what it was. Uh, yeah. Was it similar to what it's now? I think so, yeah. So what I remember was that, um, so like the, the first few times when I went online, I, I, I was very well aware, like this is a whole new thing and I'm gonna make a career in this and sort of everything is still possible. At the same time, I thought, but I'm late to the party and there are hmm. lots of people who all know everything and I don't know anything. And so I'm sort of behind. And, and the year and, was 1997. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, earlier in 1995, actually. Yeah, the, like the first time I went online and started building right. some stuff. Uh, 97 was the first company right. I started. So, um, and I, I remember, like that feeling has never changed, right? So in AI, which is just barely right out there. It's still very early days. It feels like, oh, like all the smart stuff is already built and mm -hmm. I'm sort of late to the party. But then you know, like in five years, people are going to say, oh, you were there at the beginning, right? Because still it's a few hundred million people that use it, but still very, really very early days. And I always kept repeating that when people said, uh, like, well, yeah, but in your days it was easy because nothing was invented yet. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I felt like I was very late to the party. And so I feel anybody who has any entrepreneurial spirits and, and wants to start something, I'm like, today is a great day to start, right? It's, you're not late for, every, for anything. There's always opportunities. There's, um, you know, in a way there was, what was it, in the beginning of the previous century, like 
1910 or 1920, there was like the head of the um, like the, the bureau that tr keeps track of inventions or something. He said everything that's been invented, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, could be invented is now invented. It's just this is just the end of it. And I think for a lot of people, there's always that sentiment. They're like, well, you know, everything is built. I'm not going to start a new Google, right? But then I'm like, yes, you could start a new Google, right? So th that's just entirely possible. And I, I know that because when Google started, I remember somebody showing, showing it to me and he said, uh, there's two guys at Stanford and they built a, a better search engine and it's sort of still closed, but you can try it out. And we tried it out. And then the guy who showed it to me said, like, uh, this is going to change everything. And I was like, are you insane? Because Yahoo <laughs> has, you know, there's 90% of the search market. They're a $30 billion company. 6,000 people work there. And you're telling me that two students at Stanford are going to compete? No, that's impossible. But then, of course, well, we, we know Yeah, then the history happens. happens. Yeah, history <laughs> happened. And so I think the, like the, 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 the competition is never, you know, it's not... Microsoft, who built Bing, who's going to replace Google. It's two people, uh, you know, working together, coming up with a thing. It's just going to change everything again. So I'm, in that sense, I'm very optimistic about mm -hmm. technology and and the opportunities it, yeah, it still has. And with this understanding, do you yourself have the itch to uh, start something else now? Not so much, no, because I know how much like how hard it is, right? And I've done it a few times. So, so like, I'm not saying I'm never gonna start anything again because I, I love technology and I love building new stuff. But um, like, I was the CEO of DNW for 16 years, I think. I'm still in the boards and still uh, take some of my time. And like, just the, the thought of having to restart that whole adventure. I'm like, oh my God, please give me a break for one more year. So, but then I also think uh, like it's great that other people do it though, right? A any entrepreneur, I, I would say like, yes, start today. It's great. Like it's a great adventure. It's not a boring moment ever. And there's so many opportunities that, yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> And you mentioned before, I think somewhere else that uh, you you also become an investor, so you you do invest in some projects, right? Yeah, but very limited. So right. yeah, yeah, mostly also the digital internet uh, companies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it is. Yeah, so technology and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So one is just an online service, and two are hardware. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't like. I, I I say it's very limited because I did three investments mm -hmm. and I have no plans to do anymore. <laughs> it's just, that's just, uh, that just happens. And, Are you often uh, approached? Not a lot because I don't advertise it. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and like, like now when you tell me, I'm like, no, I'm not an investor. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm just very uh, cautious with uh, what I invest in. Yeah. So another question that's uh, really obvious, I guess, logical at that. So I really wanted to ask, what are you actually up to? Uh, these days. So <laughs> yeah. after all this journey, after all these companies uh, founded, sold, uh, coming on, uh, just uh, staying as a member of the board uh, at TNW, what uh, what do you fill your days uh, with? Well, I'm I'm still very much interested in the technology, mm -hmm. so I try to stay up with that. Um, I have the few investments that I did. Uh, I'm I'm writing a book. Um, I'm still on the board, so mm -hmm. so I'm actually when 
like when um, Meerte took over, um, I thought, you know, it, it would make sense for me to sort of leave TNW and start a new company. But then I, yeah, I also felt like I, I, I needed a break. Like not that I'm on the break right now, but I I I, uh, I thought let, like let's not rush into something new. And I've seen so many entrepreneurs around me who sold their company and then like three months later they're onto a new thing and then they sort of regret not having taken the time to sort of recharge and and look at what's going on. So it's a, it might be a bit boring, but I, I really enjoy like not doing something like have something with my full focus. I have the book, which is a lot of work, like the writing. I'm very much looking forward to that. But I've also noticed that uh, you have scaled down your social media presence significantly. I have, yeah, you used yeah, to be tweeting, yeah. for example, a lot, and yeah, now I, I barely see anything yeah. coming from you. No, like 15 or 20 tweets a day. It was very normal yeah. at the time. <laughs> we were just living on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. But it was also like the... Because uh, like as the CEO and uh, there was just so much happening and then in between meetings, I was just like, you know, or if a meeting was boring, I would think of something. And mm -hmm. so it, it was very much an online lifestyle. Yeah. But then uh, uh, also like towards the end of, of my reign as, as the CEO, like the, the work became so demanding. I, I, I think I already spent less time on, on social media. And then afterwards, I, I just really enjoyed uh, just not looking at my phone mm -hmm. for a whole day. That was just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can tell you like the the delights of in the morning w waking up and looking at my calendar and having no meetings. That's just, uh, that's uh, that's pretty amazing for, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one point where I, I was complaining, so sort of complaining to a friend of mine, also an entrepreneur. And I said, uh, damn, my calendar is really filling up this week. And... And he said, like, I don't think it is. I'm like, no, no, really, I have something every day. And he said, like, can you go back to your calendar from like a year ago when you were still CEO? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I can. So I opened it up and we looked at it together and I was just horrified. I was just like, oh my God, yes, that's true. I had like 10 or 15 minute meetings and then just back to back the whole day. And then like dinner with a client and then an event in the evening and I like, and then just every day. So when I look at the town, I'm like, oh my God, God, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it, of course, because it was my work, it was my company and I enjoyed even the, the stuff that was like, even the small crisis or problems or challenges I also enjoyed. So, but then if you just look at the calendar view, you're like, oh my God, that's so much. Yeah. Oh, as someone, who's been around for a bit over a year, I think you've built a great company and we are all very grateful to you for that. <laughs> if not you. for you, yeah. wouldn't been sitting, would not have been sitting in this uh, room talking now. So yeah, yeah. great job <laughs> to yeah. you and to Patrick and to everyone involved in the times, in the times before. Now, uh, we will get back to this conversation in a little bit. Now, I wanted to get back quickly to our normal programming and uh, highlight one of the stories that we covered in this uh, past week. And we're going to stay here in the Netherlands. And uh, we were writing about a report uh, released by Deal Room. And according to this report, in 2023, Dutch startups created 256 jobs globally, of which 151,000 jobs uh, spread across over 50 cities in the Netherlands. And 
And last year, and I'm quoting from the piece now, that last year marked the first time that startups founded between 2011 and 2017 offered as many jobs as companies founded up to 2005, including the early big successes such as Booking.com or TomTom and so on and so forth. So size-wise, uh, companies with teams of up to 50 people provided 57,000 jobs, accounting for 57% of the total Dutch startup employment. So basically more than half of all the all the jobs created were created by these very small companies of up to 50 people. And unicorns, remarkably, only represented 12% of all opportunities, uh, although Booking.com remained the largest employer with 5,900 uh, positions last year. So really interesting numbers. Is this uh, anything that's unexpected to you in this? What well, it reminds think? me of a story of Booking when they were, I think they had 2,000 employees mm -hmm. and then uh, they had like Dutch politicians come over to discuss something. I don't remember what. And then they asked like the politicians, how many people do you think work at Booking? And they said like between 30 and 60. <laughs> and so so Booking was always underestimated, like how big they were, how big their business was, how, how much they were hiring. Mm -hmm. So so sort of the surprising number doesn't surprise me because mm -hmm. I know that they always surprise you, but like the, the their they're enormous, right? Yeah, yeah, so. they're, they're absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, it's really nice to see that despite uh, all the issues with the uh, funding and the general market conditions, we are seeing a lot of uh, smaller companies and a lot of jobs being created in those smaller companies. Yeah, yeah. So that was the story that we did cover, and I'm going to leave uh, a link in the show notes to that. And then another story that we didn't cover, uh, which I wanted to highlight as well, is uh, uh, has to do with the European Commission and uh, the money that it uh, has approved as a state aid uh, for uh, things related to uh, climate tech and uh, energy transition. So uh, the EU namely has approved 902 million euros in state aid for uh, battery maker Northvolt's uh, factory in Germany. So that's almost a billion euro in uh, state aid, uh, mostly in a grant, I think 700 million grant, 200 million guarantee. And the factory will be located in the city of Heide, that's near the Danish border in Germany. And interestingly, at about the same time, the EU also approved another scheme, this time for France. And that scheme consists of 2.9 billion euros, but that's in tax credit. And quoting the announcement, the measure will be open to companies which plan projects to invest in the production of solar panels, batteries, wind turbines, and heat pumps, as well as key components for producing this equipment and critical materials required for their production. So European climate tech and the energy segment in particular is getting quite a boost uh, this year already, and uh, we're about to see how this all is going to is going to pan out uh, throughout uh, throughout the year. Are you following any of these uh, companies in general, like in energy? What, uh, what, what do you think is going to no, happen? No, only generally, yeah, I follow right. it. But but I think this is one of the next frontiers. Like the, um, I, I think up until a few years ago, like the energy transition was more seen as a, as a like almost like a problem. Mm -hmm. Like oh shit, we have to do this this uh, thing. And now slowly people are starting uh, starting to realize like wait a minute, if you actually do stuff that's good for the environment, you also can make money because it's generally cheaper in the long run. But you need to make an upfront investment. Like, so I, I have a, uh, I bought a secondhand electric uh, vehicle. Um, and of course, buying it is expensive. Mm -hmm. But then after that, the, the, the charging is almost free and it saves you so much money. Yeah, yeah. And you start realizing, oh, this is just changing my perspective on, on all of this. So what do so you drive I, now? Uh, I bought a second-hand Tesla. All right. Yeah. Before Elon Musk uh, <laughs> went wild. Yeah. 
I, I uh, know there. I think you can buy stickers now. Like I bought my Tesla before. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, think I saw the yeah, number yeah, stickers. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like I have to explain to people like, no, I'm not a fanboy. It's just like, it's a great car. I just, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And I bought it secondhand, great deal. And uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can write all this uh, on, on, on your on your <laughs> I, I could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, Boris, I want to stay with you for a second more uh, for another uh, recurring uh, segment of this podcast, which is This Week We Learned. What is one thing that you learned uh, this past week that you would like to share? All right, so the unexpected excitement around the Apple Vision Pro, mm -hmm. really. And I, I knew it was coming, and I knew it was going to be interesting, but... Then I, I, I now see sort of all the announcements, all the apps that have already been built, sort of the whole ecosystem around it. And that was sort of surprising to me. And I, I realized how different that was when, when the first iPhone came out, because then we just thought like, all right, it's a great phone and you can make calls and mm -hmm. check email. But that was sort of it, right? And then the App Store came out and you're like, oh, now apps. But we didn't, we weren't really sure what's like the excitement you know, I remember the first time seeing Instagram. I remember Tinder, the founder, explaining the whole thing and and all these uh, apps that, you know, Uber, like, mm. change everything. And now the Apple Vision Pro, I had a sort of a similar thing where I thought, well, it's going to be like, like the iPhone. But then I see, uh, like, it was very smart of them to announce it a year ago and then work with developers. And if you see all the apps that are coming out now with the... Apple Vision Pro, and I'm like, oh, this is this is really gonna be exciting. Like, this is it's probably gonna be the fastest selling um, hardware item in in history. You getting Again, one? I'm getting one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I need to, of course. You know, when the iPhone came out, me and Patrick went to San Francisco. We we bought like 16, and we smuggled them back to Europe because you could <laughs> buy them in Europe, right? <laughs> and you had to hack them. So we had a hackathon in my house to. Uh, like jailbreak all the phones oh, wow. and then out of the 16 15 we managed to jailbreak break and one we bricked and it was mine oh, <laughs> so, great. like the whole thing <laughs> and i ended up with no iphone um but so this feels sort of similar so i i got an email from another founder and he said hey sh shall we just like team up and get someone to get uh, you know import one for us and then we can hack it and play with it and see what the APIs are capable of. And I'm like, that's the same excitement of the, like the first iPhone. The one thing I don't understand though, is the name. Like if you look at the, like, because it's called Apple Vision Pro, right? And mm -hmm. I think that's weird if you look at the other products, right? The Apple Watch is just the Apple Watch, very clear. But what is a Vision Pro and why, I mean, the Pro is very clearly part of the name yeah. it's not the apple vision yeah. all the products uh, all the other products uh, when they were announced first like yeah. they never had uh, any uh, additions no, to them it's no, just no the pros thing. no pluses no, no nothing no it's the thing and then at one point they make a better one and they call that the pro oh, that makes sense it's the ipad and oh we've got a new one and it's more professional so it's the pro but this is just the apple vision pro like that's a weird is that the best you could come up with that's just not very apple like maybe they have to me. justify the price yeah, that could be, yeah, because it's a lot of money, right? $3,600 yeah, 3, yeah, for yeah. The, the basic one. Yeah, yeah. But that's another interesting thing. Like some people say, yeah, but you already have an iPhone. You have, uh, why? And then just for the glasses, yeah. like that's so much. But then I looked at it and I'm thinking, like at TNW, right? If you look at, uh, at the developers, for instance, uh, they're all just, they, they're wearing headphones. They have a big screen. They're in the own world. They're just really focused. 
And I'm like, well, they could just switch to this, right? And then they wouldn't need a laptop because it would just be all on the, on the device, on Absolutely. the Apple Vision Pro. Yeah. So I can totally see that, yeah. I think for me, the price would be difficult to justify because I'm just I'm just going to be sitting on the couch watching movies, right? That's, uh, <laughs> that is expensive, yeah. But if you see it as a whole, just a separate computing uh, platform, I'm like, well, then it's fine. No, it's absolutely. Just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But well, of course, I got to get one. Yeah. Because we'll I, I got to see what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, you should, you should, when you get one, you should visit and then we should try it together here. I'll, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And maybe my, my new startup will be based on that because it's just, I think it's just super interesting, like how that's mm -hmm. going to change. And I think it's going to be more than just like a different screen right I, yeah I think yeah it's yeah, yeah no for sure world. it has to be more if, if, if it is to succeed it will have to be more yeah, yeah. perfect thanks so much so i uh from what i learned i just decided to pick one of the interesting facts that i learned uh, last week well, i mean i learned much more than one and uh, that was mostly through reading a great post by jason kotke that is that's entitled 52 interesting things i learned in 2023 so that's like a lot of things but the one i liked most however is about uh, languages and uh, the fact itself was that the word computer in iceland it translates to prophetess of numbers I think this is probably the most romantic way of uh, of calling the computer. It is pronounced uh, tolvu. Uh, if I'm, I'm sorry for any people uh, who speak Icelandic who are listening to this, I probably butchered it right now. But Icelandic, interestingly, is a pretty strict language in terms of introducing new words. So they try to keep as much of their own uh, stems uh, for words as possible in a similar way that uh, the French do, for example. Yeah. But this is, uh, this is you just know the a French great... word for computer? Uh, ordinateur. Ordinateur. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, I also fell a little bit into this uh, rabbit hole to look at, at other languages. In, in Romanian, it's actually written as calculator. It's pronounced yeah. differently, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but in yeah. Romanian, you call the computer a calculator. Yeah, yeah. It turns out. So just a random fact, but something interesting to know about uh, European languages and the way that we call the things that we spend most of our time sitting in front of. Now, moving to today's featured interview that I promised at the beginning, and this one with Cal Henderson, the co-founder and CTO at Slack, and an investor in First Minute's recently raised third fund. We talked about the future of work, uh, which Cal has a lot of interest in, also about the European tech ecosystem, and also whether working remotely is worth it for people entering the workforce now. Enjoy the conversation in full. Okay, so Cal Henderson, welcome to TNW Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, can you start by talking a little bit about uh, yourself? Where are you from? What did you do before? What do you do now? Um, sure. So I'm originally from the UK, uh, but I have lived in San Francisco for almost the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, today, I am the co-founder and CTO of Slack. Um, and prior to that, some other startups that <laughs> didn't work out so well or worked out okay. Um, yeah, it's been a long road to get here. So how long has Slack been around? Yeah. We we started working on Slack, the product, about 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. So a little while now. Um, but the company started four years before that, uh, and we set out to make video games originally. Um, and we spent four years and most of our investors' money failing to make a successful company. We made a game that hundreds of people really enjoyed, but it needed to be <laughs> tens of thousands for it to be like economically viable. Um, so... Uh, that was disappointing. Right. Um, but then when we when we did shut the game down, 
we we knew we wanted to keep working together um and we were looking trying to figure out what it what it was we were going to do and we took the tools that we had built to be able to develop this game um and turned that into slack the product um right and and it worked out that's that, that's really interesting so you're not coming back to the uk anytime soon i suppose no you know i i love living in san francisco i visit the uk quite a few times a year and i love visiting but um the I think if you work in technology, there's there's still no better place to be in the world than the Bay Area. Do you have developers in Europe? Uh, yeah, we have um, have a have an office in Dublin. That's mm-hmm. our, our kind of a mere right. a mere hub. We have a few few other people scattered across Europe, but we're we're definitely concentrated in North America. And as we're slowly inching towards our main topic of the future of work, uh, are you a hybrid, remote, uh, in office company? We. So it's it's interesting because prior to the pandemic, we were very much an office-based company. And if you had asked me, you know, even a week before we all started working from home, whether it was possible for large organizations to work remotely, I would have said no. That is just not possible for any organization of scale to be able to do it. And if you, you know, you look back only a few years, there were very few examples of fully distributed companies. Um and they usually had some kind of weird backstory to them about why they were distributed in you know, mm-hmm. automatic. The WordPress company had been very successful, but it's because of how it was formed as to why it was distributed. And they weren't that big, you know, in terms of number of people. And they were one of the very few mm-hmm. examples of a large distributed company that was successful. And then, you know, the world learned essentially overnight that it's possible for nearly every knowledge worker company to work fully distributed and continue to be just as successful as they were before, at least for a while. Um, and so now, post-pandemic, I am personally a big supporter of remote and hybrid work. Mm-hmm. I don't go into an office regularly at all. I work from home. I love seeing people, and I think that's you know one of the big distinctions between now and our you know sort of post-pandemic world and during the pandemic is just because you don't go into an office doesn't mean you can never see the people you work with. And seeing the people you work with is really important, but not necessarily for, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, I don't think that's the way you can necessarily do your best work as a a software engineer, which is what I am. Right. So how many times do you go to the office? I have the San Francisco office. I think I've been four times this year now. Um, Uh, And we we are at the end of November. We are, (laughs) yes. Um, So I very rarely go into that office, but I've also been into other offices around the world to see people. Um, But yeah, but I work from home the majority of the time now. Interesting, because recently you did uh, uh, give this uh, interview in which you argued uh, that uh, for younger workers, it's actually uh, disadvantages to be working from home predominantly. I Yes, I think it does disadvantage people earlier in their careers, because I think so much of the intangible part of learning a career is observing other people doing mm-hmm. it, sitting next to them, you know, the kind of apprenticeship model seeing how people operate. And that's a lot harder to do remotely. You know, when I look at our people on our team and our company and in peer companies who are in the office every day, it tends to be people who are younger and earlier in their career. Like every intern wants to come into the office because either they live at home and don't want to be there or they have a lot of roommates or they don't necessarily have a great working from home situation, but also they want to learn their craft. And that's so much easier to do when you're surrounded by other people. And so I think there are, there are you know, disadvantages to being fully distributed. Um, and, you know, people who are later in their careers, also some people just really like to come into an office each day, whether it's five days a week or two or three days a week. Um, you know, like a lot of people like working in that mode. And I think, you know, the most of the companies of the future are going to be more hybrid than they are fully distributed. Now, there are obviously advantages to being fully distributed, like a big 
you know, operational expense advantage to yeah. not having to have offices. Um, but you know, uh, the there are there are downsides to that as well. I think when I look back at the very early Slack days when we were pretty distributed, it's just we were in three offices in different <laughs> cities around North America. Is Yes, we were distributed, but we also then spent a lot of time together. We would, you know, like get together for a week of intensely mm -hmm, all working mm -hmm, together mm -hmm. in one place and then go back to where we did our kind of regular cadence of work. So I think it's the across kind of different roles and different industries, what we're what we've seen over the last year and what we're going to continue to see over the next few years is people really figuring out what kinds of activities are really important to do in person. And obviously there's a lot of like relationship and team building kind of stuff, but also what kind of business, you know, work activities yeah. are best done in person, whether it's kind of planning or intensely, intensely collaborative or creative work where it's much better to do it in person. And then what kind of tasks are best done not in person, you know, where you can do individual heads down focused work um, where it's much better to just be by yourself. No, absolutely. And uh, I hear a lot uh, that uh, companies are starting to introduce return to office uh, type of uh, policies that, that you're doing as well. Uh, we don't have a return to office policy, um, but um, I think for some kinds of work, it makes sense. I think it is it is hard. One of the hardest things is coordinating between groups of people around mm. when you're going to be in an office together and making sure, you know, like if everybody comes into the office one day a week, but they all pick a different day, then there's no advantage to being there, right? True. So I think it's the, you know, what does team agreements look like to, you know, kind of get the best out of individual teams rather than mm -hmm. individual people. So I think that's a challenge. I think there are, you know, there are, there are companies that, all different points along the spectrum from companies who may have made everybody come back to the office five days a week um, to ones where, you know, people are got or companies that got rid of their offices completely. And so you can never come yeah, into an office yeah. again. Right. And I think there are that that's going to continue to be the case. Um, there will always be people on either extremes of that. But I think the majority of organizations are going to end up somewhere in the middle, which is hybrid setup. Some workers maybe who are completely remote. I think there is for in in the US, so many people during the pandemic kind of moved back to the middle of the country, you know, mm -hmm. to be with their families or to support, you know, like um, uh, support their sick families. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're like, actually, I like living here. And I, if I can work remotely, then I will. And I think that, you know, as we saw more and more kind of senior talent do that, people, companies still want to employ these people. And now there's more tolerance for employing some people who are fully remote as well as, yeah. you know, yeah. even if you have a, a strong center of gravity around right. offices. So uh, in general, of course, when the pandemic started, Slack was one of these uh, most important tools uh, <clears throat> that allowed for this uh, effective and efficient remote collaboration. But uh, over these years, it's been what, three years now, how did the product itself change to reflect this new reality, if at all? Yeah, I think the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really a, we saw this, we saw this massive, scramble for organizations to ha get the tools that they needed to be able to continue to operate, right? So we saw this massive spike at the beginning of the pandemic of companies trying stuff out, trying mm -hmm. to see what would work and, and you know, and uh, and what they needed. I think then we saw that kind of level off because, you know, a couple of months into it, companies had it figured out or, or the company was gone, you know, they figured out how to operate or they weren't yeah. operating. And so, you know, but 
What, what was kind of interesting from a usage point of view is we saw this big spike in usage at the beginning of the pandemic, um, not just in number of companies using using Slack, but in how many kind of hours a day each user was using Slack, mm-hmm. how many messages they were sending. It's big elevated and it hasn't gone back down. So mm-hmm. while people are, you know, many people are back in the office, whether it's hybrid or full time, we're seeing people use Slack a lot more still. Mm-hmm. So I think the that shift to to more kind of digital communication versus in person has sustained, even though people are often back in person. So I think it is just a there's benefits to communicating digitally. If uh, you know if anybody is outside of the office, if you put right. things digitally, then everybody has access to that, and it's easier to find later. And so, so I think we've seen that that be a permanent shift. And it, in many ways, I think that was what the like kind of long lasting effects to the workplace of COVID have been an acceleration of trends that were already happening. Mm-hmm. It's just we jumped forward five or maybe 10 years in some cases right. in the direction we were already going. So, you know, digitization of more and more work. I think in terms of how we think about the product, we, during the first kind of year of the pandemic, we were thinking about what kind of product experiences, what kind of capabilities are we lacking now that we're not in the office? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we released during the pandemic was what we call huddles, which are our like kind of instant mm-hmm. voice and video calls. Um, and the idea there was when you're in an office, you can go up to somebody and tap them on the shoulder and ask them a question and um, you know, and get that kind of instant interaction. What does the equivalent of that look like when you're remote? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. is the ability to switch very quickly from messaging with somebody to chatting with them live, to switching back to messaging. And, you know, we have this, this is a very widely used capability within Slack now. And half of all of our all of our huddles are just audio. It's people mm-hmm, one-on-one, you know, just want to switch to a higher bandwidth way of communicating for a bit and then switch back to messaging. Um, and that, that's that been really popular. And it's, you know, it's like the technical capabilities to do this kind of thing exist already with tools like Zoom and Meet and Teams, but people, you know, a tool like that that's mostly used for scheduled video meetings feels very different than just being able to ask somebody a question live. And I think it's the, it's not really about the kind of raw technical capabilities. It's about the way in which you present and think about these things. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, <clears throat> with this, I wanted to move on to the second topic that I want to discuss with you a little bit. It's about, more about the European ecosystem that's more uh, more uh, relevant uh, generally for the publication uh, for TNW. Yeah. We focus on Europe, uh, but we use Slack. So that was a, that was a great yeah. part of the conversation. So now I know more about the thinking behind the product and uh, the new features. I can't say I use huddles too much, but uh, but we do sometimes. Okay. Uh, so uh, you are among the backers of uh, the third fund of uh, First Minute. Uh, yes. Uh, does it mean that you actually follow the European uh, startup ecosystem closely? Oh yes. So you know, I'm originally British, uh, but I've been I've been out of the country for and out of Europe for 20 years now. Um, but the I I really want to be able to give back in some way mm-hmm. to the to the European, especially the British ecosystem of the where so much kind of value creation has happened in the Bay Area. Um, and not just in terms of like economic value, but the people's lives now are so influenced by technology, especially consumer technology, but also technology in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And that technology is created by very few people, relatively speaking, who have such huge leverage. Yeah, And 
that needs to be spread out throughout more of the world. And there's the you know people in the UK, people in Europe are just as smart as people you know in California. It's not like Californians are you know amazing geniuses and everyone else is a dummy. It's it's like opportunity <laughs> to do these things. And there's no reason. I mean, there's a lot of structural reasons, but there's no like end reason why we can't have many amazing startups, you know, coming out of Europe. Absolutely. And I want to, I want to support that. And so I, you know, I'm part of a few different funds um, in Europe, mm -hmm. and I've invested personally, angel invest in in a lot of European companies as well. And I want to see that ecosystem thrive. And I think the way that that happens is through sustained investment and generations and generations of companies being successful, failing, but trying and trying again. And I think, you know, the big thing that everywhere but the Bay Area and Silicon Valley is lacking is a really rich history of doing that over a long period of time. And it just takes mm -hmm. time to establish that. So okay. I'm happy to see that, you know, many areas in Europe are, you know, are doing better and better every year. And when you can sustain that for 20 or 30 years, you get the kind of the amazing kind of network effects and ecosystem that you have in the Bay Area. And I'd love to see that more places in Europe. Interesting. Do you have any particular thesis uh, to your investments, like which uh, verticals would you be more interested in and stuff like that? You know, I, you know, my, my focuses are British founders mm -hmm. um, and, and often areas in which I feel like I could help if I had more time. So, you know, B2B SaaS and things mm -hmm. that, uh, businesses that I understand. But really it is all about the founder. So, mm -hmm. you know, so often when I look at look at my career and where where I've been successful and where I haven't is the you don't necessarily go in with an exact idea of where it's going to come out. And when you look at nearly every successful business, it's changed quite a lot from where it started. And so, it's hard, you know, if you're talking about like later stage or growth investing, then you're, you know, you're looking at the company on its merits and mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at financials yeah, and yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, projections. But when you're when you're angel investing and seed investing, it's do you believe in this person? Because maybe their current idea isn't going to work out, but do you think that they will have the the kind of grit to to stick it out and figure out what is going to work and get through it? And so it's about, you know, the I, I love meeting founders who have like such a high level of passion for what they're doing because it might not work out, but they're going to need that passion to be able to be successful. Um, and that kind of enthusiasm and drive and like excitement about the area they're in and willingness to create and and learn um, is is great. And I love to see that in people. I think it is one of the most important things that I can contribute back is encouraging that because you mm -hmm. have to have that that attitude towards you know, like an unrealistic optimism. You have to be relentlessly <laughs> optimistic in the face of all evidence. If you were, you know, if you wanted to look at the chances of startups succeeding, nobody would ever create one. So they're mostly not going to work out. It's mostly, you know, if you're looking for like financial stability, don't yeah. ever start a startup. It's a terrible idea. Um, but you need that optimism. You need that belief in yourself that you're going to be successful uh, and to that drive to keep you going. Um, and so I want to encourage that in people. You got any stories and examples to share with the companies you backed? Um, you know, I, I back early stage companies, so mm -hmm. a lot of them are still very early stage. Oh, right. Um, yeah, uh, there's loads of it. I think the the thing about software um, as a as a category is increasingly you can solve so many problems with software. Um, not everything, you know. I don't think we're gonna you know solve a, most of the world's biggest challenges just by writing software. It requires more than that. But also, there's just endless opportunity to like optimize little bits of people's lives, whether it's on the consumer side, whether it's on the you know on the corporate side, um, and the 
most bits of software that we use, whether it's consumer or corporate, um, are kind of bad. Like, and I look at the things that I've created as well and just see so much opportunity for improvement. And I think that's great. There is so much opportunity for people to make things that are better in whatever right. segments, you know, across every kind of segment. And that's great. It is such a time of opportunity, and especially, I mean, that there's a lot of downside to it as well, but especially in the last year with the kind of emergence of um, AI, large language models, generative AI is so many interesting applications every segment can you know has can is going to have some kind of disruption and innovation um and whilst it's a terrifying time to start a startup because so many ai startups this year are already obsolete um <sighs> it's there's so many interesting things that are going to be built and i think there is um you know i've never been more optimistic about the ability for like there to be thousands of really successful software oriented technology startups um in the world and that's great right and but uh, uh, that, uh, now, now that you're looking at uh, the early stage ecosystem in the uk for example yeah. do you see any particular verticals that you can say are going to be the strengths of these ecosystems or are already the strengths of this ecosystem you know i think the uk particularly mm -hmm. has an affinity for for fintech right um because you know fin finance comes naturally there and i think it is the the kind of verticals that end up being the most successful in any given market are the ones where there's a supporting ecosystem around them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are, uh, there is like a big industry around finance, but also then there are, you know, acquirers who will acquire smaller companies. And so I think fintech is a, it's much easier to do a fintech company in London than this to do a hmm. consumer technology company, for instance. Well, know, that is true. Or yeah, things yeah. that are very capital intensive are going to be very difficult in Europe compared to, to doing them in the US. Right. And how do you look at these early stage AI companies, which there are so many of? So many of. I think it is a difficult time to start an AI company right now because, you know, what is, where is the value going to be? five, 10 years from now. Now, if you're making uh, like infrastructure, you know, you're selling picks and shovels to people making AI companies, that's a great time to be alive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're an end product, I think it's very difficult to know right now what is going to be an interesting product right now versus a few years from now. Mm -hmm. I think the, the incumbents who have a lot of data, and that definitely includes us at Slack, are just at a huge advantage because it's AI is a capability rather than an end product. Right, and it's a capability that allows people with a lot of data to do things they weren't able to before, but that isn't necessarily a thing you would buy in and of itself. And I think we still don't really understand what people will pay for and where the value is in a lot of these AI products. And so it's a tough time to be doing an AI startup, but inevitably, as with kind of any generation of technology, there's going to be a bunch of companies that were started this year or last year around AI that are going to be very successful. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, everybody will know the name of 10 years from now predicting which those are is incredibly difficult. <laughs> I can't say I see a lot of AI and particularly gener generative AI uh, come into Slack over the past uh, over the past uh, months. Is there something in the uh, works? There, there's a lot of features in the works and we have stuff <laughs> in testing with some of our customers mm -hmm. right now, especially around very straightforward things like um, uh, being able to summarize things in Slack is is really powerful. Right, which we can do using large language models. You know, if you haven't uh, if you haven't looked at Slack for a little while, we can summarize everything. Uh, you know, the yes, you have ten thousand messages, but here are the five most important things you might care about based on you know everything you've read and interacted with before. Or you join a you know you join a project channel that has years of history. Oh, Give yeah. me the summary of that. Like, tell me everything that I should know to be up to speed. And so, summarization I think is is really powerful here. Um, but another one is, you know, to the to my point about the the power of AI for companies which have a lot of data is mm -hmm. for a lot of our customers we have, 
years and millions of messages. And we have kind of the history of their company, how it operates, how decisions are made, who are the experts on what topics, and being able to unlock that through search, but not not like search like I need to find a particular message, but I need to ask a question about my company. You mm -hmm. know, who is the I'm doing a project in this area. Who are the experts I should talk to? Right. When we've had a problem, this kind of problem with a customer before, how did we solve it? What are the actions we took that were successful? What are mm -hmm, actions we mm -hmm. took that weren't successful? You know, so learning allows kind of the, the dream here is to allow kind of any employee, a new employee at a company to be able to act like an expert who's been there for 10 years and understands <laughs> how everything operates, right? And give people superpowers. And so the the, the more... You know, the longer somebody has been using Slack, the more value we can give back, you know, the more valuable that archive becomes. And it becomes, you know, a, like a, a company historian, if you like, that mm -hmm, understands mm -hmm. everything that's happened in the history of that company. So I think those, so the, those are capabilities that we're working on, which I think are very, very exciting and powerful yeah. for our customers. And I think it's, you know, it's, it uses large language models, right? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the way in which we build that. But what you're not buying like a digital assistant in that way. You don't, you know, it's you're not thinking about it in those terms. You're thinking about it as like how can I unlock the value that's in all of the archive of that information about how my company operates. Right. And just out of curiosity, then why is it taking so long? So it's been a year since ChatGPT was released, and uh, over this year, a whole lot of other companies in similar spaces have introduced all sorts of different Gen AI capabilities. But you seem to be sort of either more cautious or more thorough in your approach, or just slow. So what, what is it? <laughs> uh, I, I think careful and cautious is a big one. Of it needs to actually be valuable and useful, and mm -hmm. you know, in terms of summarizing, it needs to be accurate and not making things up. You know, in terms of being able to answer questions, it needs to be correct and useful. And I think the the a lot of the the products. Well, I mean, you you didn't see many AI products released until the back half of this year. You know, people were yeah. experimenting with this and taking time to get the product experiences right. And I think the the experience and interface to a lot of these things is still not where it's going to be in the mm -hmm. end. You know, the the thing which sparked people's interest a year ago, just over a year ago, was the model, you know, GPT-3 had been around for a while, but it was putting a chat interface mm -hmm. on it. And that's really interesting, but I don't think that's the ultimate way that we'll mostly interact Absolutely with, with large language Absolutely models over the next few so years. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be... Chat as an interface is really interesting for exploratory things. I think it is not... It's not the right way to do a lot of things. You know, you want things done either automatically for you or at a push of a button, not I have to type out an English yeah. sentence. Um in, in in a bunch of ways. There are some things where English sentences make or natural language sentences in different languages make a ton of sense, like, you know, customer support mm -hmm. queries, you know, talking to talking to fit people on the phone, whatever it is. Um, but I think the figuring out what the right uh interfaces and interactions are is is really important. You know, we could have you, you can already, you know, get a like a chat GPT bot in Slack and talk to mm -hmm. Chat GPT in yeah, Slack. Yeah, it's yeah. like, ah, oh, it's cool. You know, but like is that the where the end value is? Don't think it is. So we're been trying to make sure that what we what we release to customers is actually really valuable and useful. Right. And just to <clears throat> and just to satisfy the rest of my curiosity, how would it work financially though, like economically? Because it is if you, for example, are building on top of ChatGPT or Anthropic solutions, yeah. it all costs money, and that will eat into your margins. So yes. how is it? Uh, how 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 does it work for you? You know, we're still looking at how how we price these things, and I think the market in general is trying to understand how people 
you know how everybody is going to price these things and when you're when you're first to market and you you know like as say notion was mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know was early in charging people for it and you can pay twice as much and get the ai features which is great for one product but i think in the long term people aren't going to pay twice as much for every product that no they buy. yeah exactly and so i think still don't understand what kind of consumer or you know customer price sensitivity looks like what people are willing to buy but also the evolution of where they buy AI capabilities from. I think the it makes logical sense that a lot of things are going to end up either built into your operating system or into your devices. You know, we each carrying around like a little supercomputer super yeah. of a phone. Like, why isn't that building a personal model for me of everything I can see? And that's very different to like buying AI services from every app that you buy. So I think that remains to be seen. But it is expensive, right? It's expensive to provide these capabilities, relatively speaking. The mm-hmm. price will come down as well. The price has been coming down all year. Um, but it's still, it's an expensive capability to provide. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. That's all we have time for. I'm very happy to have talked to you. Uh, Great to meet you and uh, good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. Big thanks to Kyle for finding the time to come on the show. And this is all we have time for in this episode in the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Boris, for joining today. My pleasure. So, Boris, where can people find you these days? Where can we uh, hear from you? I think I'm most active on Instagram, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, Boris on Instagram. And Boris on Instagram. Yeah. Are you still being confused with Boris Johnson a lot on social? No, not so much anymore because he's no longer. He's <laughs> it not used to be like every, an everyday uh, occurrence, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a, like an automatic reply for messages who sent me like shit. Like I would w- wake up in the morning and people would be angry at me and I would understand why. And I'm like, oh, right, it's the other Boris. So today it's more like. Uh, dogs, cats, and horses named Boris, and they tag me as Boris, and like in a story or a post. I think that's that's much nicer in general. Yeah, yeah I always those are like, cute. I'll like... go like meow or woof. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that's at Boris at Instagram. And if you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show, and follow our updates on social media. Just search for the Next Web, and you will find us pretty much everywhere. Original music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by Sound Pulse. Feel free to email me with any any questions, suggestions, and opinions, I'm always at andri at thenextweb.com. Have a great week, and I will talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.